Hello and welcome to your go-to Detroit Pistons podcast, The Pistons Pulse, co-hosted by me, Bryce Simon of Motor City Hoops, a former D1 Hooper and current teacher, husband, and father of three amazing kids. Now I'm Omari Sanko for the second Pistons beat writer for the Detroit Free Press. And of course, we're blessed to always be joined by our producer, Wes Davenport. And Omari, the streak has hit 24 games and... I don't even know what we want to talk about in terms of that. We'll talk about it a little bit. We're going to play buy, sell, or hold on this episode. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. We'll talk about all the other stuff first. But a couple things before that, Amari. Next week, obviously, it's Christmas, guys. We are going to go live on Wednesday evening next week just because of Christmas and when the games are and all of that stuff. And then the podcast version will drop on Thursday. And then we... Obviously, went over 100 episodes this past week. So we're starting a new one here, Amari, starting at one, hopefully another 100. We did get a new review. This is from Drew iPhone, new listener. So this was interesting. He said, new to the podcast, only started listening this year after following Amari on Twitter. Really enjoyed listening in, hoping to catch a few of the episodes live. As a basketball coach, I appreciate the reasonable expectations and takes about the team. There are too many hot takes, bad takes, lack of knowledge out there, but you guys are going about things the right way, in my opinion. I think it's evident right now the team just doesn't have enough. Firepower, star power, however you want to categorize it, it's not enough. I look forward to hearing from you guys each week. Keep up the great work. The show will keep building next stop into four-digit territory, Mari. He thinks we can hit a 1,000. I don't know, but that would be pretty cool. A 1,000 would be a lot. We will see. But that's exactly what we are going for with this pod. So your review reaffirms that we're doing this way we want to do it. So we appreciate it. And people don't hold back to Give us reviews. It's Christmas season. Go on the spread of Christmas joy, Christmas cheer. Uh, go into the podcast app on Apple and just go in and give us five stars and tell us why you like us. Or if you hate us, you can share that too, but still give five stars. Just don't give less than five stars. Yeah, that's what, keep, keep it up there. I, I got a little sad. I'm not going to lie. I try not to get too worked up with the comments and all of that. We dropped down to 4.8 on Apple and I was like, oh man, like I knew we weren't going to stay five star forever, but I'm pretty proud, Amari, of our 4.9 stars on Apple and Spotify. And it sounds like you ran into somebody recently that was also a fan of the pod. Yeah, at Safe Arm Arena in Atlanta last night. Shout out to Damien. Uh, I was just walking down the, the court and he was at the arena and he was like, oh, you're an Omari and just started talking about how he's been listening to the pod since day one. So we appreciate that. He also said we have to get Bryce talking about food again, but I'm going <laughs> to we're going to lay off of it. We're going to we're going to leave Bryce alone. Let's, let's let, let it calm down. Maybe sometime in January we can start working that back into the discourse. That is awesome that. Like, you know, they're real listeners whenever they comment on the food part, right? Like, that's when I know somebody's really into the pod is whenever they know all the little intricacies and the things we don't necessarily talk about every single episode, although that has been a big part of it. Amari, I mentioned at the top, 24 game losing streak. I got to ask you this before we talk about the team. The worst part about this for me right now is my students come in every day cooking me about the Pistons now. So I have these middle school kids who know nothing legitimate about basketball, but they know I do the pod. So they'll be like, oh, how the Pistons do last night? I'm like, they lost. Oh, 24 losses in a row. And they were like, oh, I bet DeJounte Murray cooked them last night. And I bet Clint Capella cooked them last night. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't take this. And then I was texting Ranny today and she goes, Ranny is my wife for all the listeners. She goes, if this year is bad, surely they have to be better next year, right? And I was like, babe, 
That's what we've been saying for the last couple of years. So I, I don't know that that's like a for sure thing. So my question was, do you have anybody like that with you that's just like texting you or commenting to you? Like, how do you cover a team that's lost 24 games or anything like that? Yeah, I've gotten DMs. There's people on Twitter uh, who have just been like, like, how are you doing this? Like, I feel bad, this and that. And I tell everybody, like, I'm still down with a blast doing my job. You know, the job is the job. And then the games are the games and the games are not interesting right now. You know, I mean, except last night, of course, K score 43, which we'll get to later, I'm sure. But the job is the the job, you know, but people have wondered that. I actually had an Uber driver last night from the arena and, you know, you're just like making small talk. And she asked what I did. And I was like, you know, I just work in media. And then she was like, did you cover the basketball game or a basketball game? She wasn't a sports fan at all. So I was like, yeah, it was the Pistons and the Hawks. And then she was like, so you cover the Hawks? I was like, no, Detroit's the, the Pistons. <laughs> so she didn't know like anything about sports at all. And then she was like, okay, so who won? And then I was like, the Hawks did. And then she was like, so which team do you root for? And I was like, you know, I'm like, I'm like, media don't really root, but I follow the Pistons. And actually it was like their 24th straight game that they lost. And then it just got quiet again. And she was just like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, you know, she had no clue, like not following basketball or anything. And it just like kind of said it to her like, wow, that is bleak. So yeah, there's been a lot of that. Honestly, there's been a lot of it. And I don't know how you feel, Bryce, but personally, like, it hasn't really ruined my enjoyment of the job at all. It still feels pretty like routine to me, honestly. So it's funny you say that. And because me and Wes, we text back and forth a lot today. And I'll reference back to that when we get to one of the buy, sell or holds later. But I kind of told him the same thing. And I'll be honest, I have a lot of stuff going on, right? Amari, we've talked about it. I'm on game theory now. So I'm doing general MBA and I have some non-media stuff that I do as well. And so my true fandom isn't nearly as strong as it was when I first started doing this. And, and most listeners know I'm not a lifer. Like this became a thing in December, 2020, but I still love watching the game. I still love doing the podcast with you. I love typing in all of my notes in the outline. Wes puts the outline together and then I go through and I, I put all the, I love doing all of that stuff still. Like it's, it's not work quote unquote to me or whatever. I don't dread coming on the pod and talking about the Pistons with you. I dread listening to my middle school students cook me about the Pistons being bad. And I'll be honest, I dread listening to some of the national podcasts I listen to because they're just taking this chance to make fun of the Pistons any chance they get. And, and probably rightfully so. Like, I get it. But anytime I hear them bring up the Pistons on a national podcast, I just kind of get nervous. But no, I, I still enjoy doing what we're doing. Like, legitimately... I could stop doing this if I didn't. You know, it's not like it's my sole source of income. I don't live in Detroit, anything like that. I still love doing this, even during a 24-game losing streak. And so I'm in the same boat as you. I still enjoy my quote-unquote job of co-hosting the Pistons Pulse with you. Yeah, no, likewise. And I think what's interesting is that, like, imagine this time last year where we were coming up, I believe, when the news that Kay was going to be out for the rest of the year and he had only played 12 <laughs> games up to that point. And it's like, we still have like 50 games left. And like, what are we going to talk about? Like, of course, we still had stuff. I mean, you have Jaden Ivey and Jalen Duren and, and whatnot, but it really sort of took the wind out of the season pretty early. And I think we all noticed just across the board in media, like, interest dwindled after that because it's like when the season's done and this year it's the opposite where things have gone so spectacularly bad like in the first third of the season that people are like more engaged than they usually would be in november and december and for us it gives us a lot more to dissect like how were how was everybody just so collectively off 
on what this team is and then to not only miss expectations, but to lose 24 straight, which is just an entirely different. I mean, if you had said that like two months ago, it would just be like, like, there's no way, you know, like, are you serious? So that adds, I think, a different element to the job where now there's like something you can like really dig into. Right. And I think that has given this season a much different flavor than any, like any season I've covered. But yeah, if I were a fan, it'd be frustrating. But as a reporter, I'm like, there's like a lot going on. Like there's a lot for us to like dig into and dissect and report and all this other stuff. So that's pretty interesting. I mean, it's happening right now as we record this live. We're at over 70 viewers right now. And we're not even 10 minutes into the episode. Usually we peak probably 30, 40 minutes into the episode, Wes. And we've recorded the first 10 minutes of episodes during this season, Omari, where there was 10, 15 live viewers at the beginning of the episode. Yeah. Speaking of Wes, Doe Jumar says, you guys should do an episode with Wes on the mic. We'd love to hear him chop it up with you guys too. We do try to get him on there and talk with us and lead things. He's got his own thing rocking too. So over at Detroit Bad Boys, they're doing their thing over there. Make sure you're tuning into those lives as well. Doug McMiniman, Wes is a rock. Wes is absolutely the rock of the Pistons Pulse. Wes Davenport, Robin Chan, those guys are the rocks behind everything that happens here. And Jeremy says, hit the like button. Yes, hit the like button. I'm not very good at this. So yeah, guys, go hit the like button. We appreciate that. I always forget to add that in. Let's talk some hoops, Omari. We've had a few games since our last recording. Obviously, all losses. Any big takeaways from the two Sixers loss, the Bucks loss, and then you brought up the loss on Monday night to the Hawks. Anything, we don't want to get into Cade and some of that stuff that we're going to do here in segments two and three, but anything else, any of the other players that maybe we're not going to dive into super deep, so in these games, you can almost just see, I mean, it's not even almost, I mean, you can just see the hierarchy in the East, right? Where like, they're just completely outmatched by the the Sixers in both games. And then you go to Milwaukee the next day. And I think the score was like 54-24, like two minutes into the second quarter. And it's just like the game was never competitive. And they had some injuries. Like it's just matchup wise, it's, it's really tough to go against Embiid and then Brooke Lopez and Giannis without Jalen Duran. And then, like, just without the size you need up front in general, Isaiah Stewart, you know, of course, uh, had his work cut out for him, defending him, beating those two games. And then he had a sprained shoulder on Saturday, and uh, we asked Monty about it. And it sounds like just defending him, him, him beat had a lot to do with why his shoulder was sore because he was taking on the brunt of that. So, again, I mean, all, all those games were pretty hard to 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 watch. I mean, they were the type of games, like, by the end of the third, it's like you just know it's already done. And that's always tough. But then the Atlanta game was actually pretty competitive. And I think that was a different type of tough to watch because the Pistons did fight. They had the Hawks make some really, really tough threes early. They shot nine for 12 in the first. And like probably four of those threes were just like tough makes. Like Trey Young had one. Reese falling out of bounds at the corner and like he gets it to fall. And it's just like, what do you do at that point? But, you know, of course, K Bogey had strong games. And like Ivy was even solid and like Bagley was solid. And still, it's not enough, you know, against a team in the East that's 10 to 16. So we're just seeing more and more that, you know, this team is not only just a very, very, very far ways off from the contenders. There's also a pretty significant gap between just the middle class, you know, just what we've seen. I mean, over the course of the streak, but especially this past week, I think it lined up pretty well with what we've seen thus far. This team could fight depending on the opponent, but they can't sustain anything. And it really cost them, especially late. 
Well, I mean, you had an insane performance from Cade Cunningham. Like you said, Boyan, at least offensively, still scored the ball pretty well, and it just wasn't enough. Doug McMiniman brings up Bagley and Wiseman are showing improvement. Let's talk about those two guys just a little bit. Again, guys, we will get to the, the big names and all of that here in just a little bit. I think those guys have played well. I think I text Wes today as we talked about all of this, like I say, through our text messages this morning. If those guys are your like fourth and fifth bigs or your emergency bigs or something like that, I would feel pretty good about them. But right now you're trying to start Marvin Bagley and bring James Wiseman off the bench and they just have no chance against somebody like Joel Embiid. You know, like those guys are just, even Brooke, I think Brooke Lopez is really good. He's a prototypical center in the modern NBA with his ability to stretch the floor and protect the rim. I think those guys have been fine, but fine isn't good enough for a starting NBA center. Fine isn't good enough for a, a backup center that needs to play 20 to 24 minutes. If those guys are four and five on the roster, I think you feel a lot better about them. And that's where I'm out. That's where I'm at, excuse me, with those two guys. So while, yes, there's been some positive things, Amari, it's not enough to be like, oh, these are long-term answers at the center position, at least in the starting lineup or first big off the bench. No doubt, no doubt. And the center rotation, I think, really is, besides the wings, it's just the most glaring thing, right? Uh, they have all these guys on the, on the team, and I wrote it earlier this week, but Wiseman, Bagley, Duran are all functionally the same on offense. You know, they're all pick and roll, lob threats, and none of those guys really protect the rim. And, you know, it's not coincidental. I think Isaiah Stewart's best, I'm sorry, Kay Cunningham's best basketball has come with like Stu at the five in these last couple of weeks or just just having more spacing overall, right? Like even with Bagley at the five, you have Bogey at, at the four. Any lineup that's prioritized spacing, I think it's made Kay's life a lot easier. And that kind of gets back into the just roster imbalances we've seen in general, right? You just have too much row overlap and things you don't necessarily need overlap in. And then uh, not enough of... Like Bogey and Cade, like they shot like nine for 20, nine for 28, something like that. But it was around 41%. Uh, but like Cade and Bogey had eight of those threes and then Sasser had one and then nobody else could hit a three. Like you see a lot of those games too. And uh, these, these issues have just kind of stacked up and compounded on them. Let's talk about Marcus Sasser because I think it was our last recording, maybe a couple recordings ago. We talked a little bit about him and I made the comment of, I think maybe Sasser needed a break. Like he needed to rest a little bit. So I, I looked it up. I was like, maybe I was crazy because he's scored the ball well recently. So in the 13 games before he got a did not play, he was playing just about 16 minutes a night, 37% from the field, 29% from three. So the numbers had dipped a little bit for Sasser. The, end of those 13 games he only played like five in the final two and then he took a game off and then the four most recent games Omari he's playing about 15 minutes a night he's now shooting 79 percent 83 percent from three like obviously it's smaller volume but I do think that maybe these rookies need that every once in a while where like give them a break give them a couple nights off and I thought these games this week Sasser did look better it looked like the shot was there I have one qualm with Sasser, and I think that the ball sticks in his hand just a little too much. Like, I didn't anticipate him. He has wiggle, Amari, but I would rather see him a little bit more off-ball catch and shoot. What have you thought about Sasser, especially like this week and, and kind of how he's been able to come in and at least bang shots? I was going to mention that, and uh, you mentioned it first, but just the ball does seem to stick in his hand a bit. Like, his first priority, a lot of possessions seems to be how am I going to get this ball in the bucket? And he's, you know, playing more like a a Lou Williams type than maybe like a, you know, a backup point guard who's just 
more leaning as a scorer. Like he plays more of like an off guard, I think. And that could just be a rookie looking to establish himself. Like he moved the ball actually pretty solidly, but he was in college. So that could just be an adjustment thing. But uh, beyond that, yeah, I mean, he did get his three ball going a little bit more. Uh, he's one of the few guys on the team who can really hit those like step backs and side steps. We've seen him heat up enough times this season. That makes me think that it may take a little bit more time this year, but by the end he can become a more regular contributor, especially if there's something that maybe clears out that guard rotation a little bit more. And I think he's been a bit better this year. You mentioned maybe the, the rookies need a break here and there. And Monty's actually kind of hinted on that. Like these guys have a lot on their plate, like they're transitioning to the NBA and there's just a awareness of not to o- overload them. And I think Sasser at one point, we saw him just kind of get bogged down and that shot just wasn't falling. Uh, so I think of all the guys in that backcourt, like still in my mind, Sasser's like the one guy who theoretically can like really, really knock down shots and also give you some defensive energy. And to me, like there's still a role there for him to seize if he can uh, continue to build on what he showed this past weekend and make that second step. Yeah, I like it. I want to ask about Isaiah Livers as well before we go to our first break. Amari, I've tried to be a big fan of Isaiah Livers. Early on in his career, I was a big fan. I kind of soured coming into this season. I kind of came around. I think that speaks to the lack of depth and what they have at the wing kind of forward position. Right now, Isaiah Livers is playing over 20 minutes a game, shooting 28% from the field, 25% from three. He gets to the free throw line less than one time a game, 2.2 rebounds, 1.2 assists. And like the eye test doesn't look a whole lot better, Omari. Like I, all I want to see Isaiah Livers do is knock down catch and shoot threes and be at least a really good team defender. Now there was one game this week where I had in my notes that he did make some impactful defensive plays. I just don't think he's been what I was hoping he would be. What have your thoughts been on Isaiah Livers so far, kind of this year as a whole, not just the last week? Yeah, um, I'm pretty much aligned with you. Uh, He came into the season as like the guy who could potentially, or lead forward, I should say, who could be both three and D for this team. And neither have really been there. Uh, His shot hasn't been there. I think we've seen him get more frustrated with that as this losing streak is going on. You know, of course, he had a delayed start to the season as well, uh, just missing training camp, but that sprained ankle. So how much did that set him back? I don't know. You know, there's a chance that as it gets worse settled, you know, maybe gets less off of his plate as the season goes on that he'll begin to find that touch. But it has has been tough for him. It's been a tough start. I think he only played four minutes last night, and that was the first night. And probably since he got back, that Monty began to look away from him a little bit. So... When you're a shooter and the shot's not falling, like that's just frustration. You can see I'm kind of wearing that frustration right now. So it could just be a situation where he just takes a step back for a week or two maybe. And then if he finds that touch, kind of finds that rhythm again, he could be a guy who ends up becoming a rotation piece. But so far, it's just been, it really has been a tough start for him. Yeah, I like the idea of who Isaiah Livers is. I think that's a very functional, very quality NBA player, especially off the bench. It just, he hasn't been able to realize that as much as I've wanted to believe in it and as much as this team truly needs that guy. Let's go to a break, Amari. When we come back, we're going to get into the meat and potatoes of all of this. We're going to start with the players. So Cade Cunningham, Killian Hayes, Jaden Ivey, all of those guys. We're going to buy, sell, hold on some storylines, topics, narratives, whatever you want to say around those guys. We'll dive right into that after this short break. All 
All right, we're back with segment two, and we're going to play a game of buy, sell, hold on what we think are the hot button topics this season. And uh, if you have time at the end, if anybody has any suggestions, feel free to send them our way. I'm yeah. sure a lot of the suggestions will be uh, things we have in some capacity, but we'll see what we could fold in. So let's kick this off with Killian Hayes. He has fallen off a little bit in the past week or two after a pretty solid stretch of basketball. Bryce, buy, sell, hold on Killian Hayes being a rotation level guard that through the one third mark, which is where are you on, on that? Because it still seems like there's some disagreement. No, what's funny is we had a couple episodes. I think it was the Killian Hayes versus Patrick Williams conversation. Mm-hmm. And since last episode where we talked about how consistent Killian had been this year, he had three of his 10 worst game score, which that's a basketball referencing John Hollinger. But uh, look, it's not an end all be all. I just kind of like to reference it every once in a while. He had three of his 10 worst of the season. So we gave him love for his consistency and confidence from the New Year's resolution pod almost a year ago. And then he comes out and he gets three not so hot games. And we talked about Patrick Williams in terms of like, man, like this guy hasn't been great. Well, Patrick Williams over his last 12 games is averaging 14 points on 51, 50, 69% from the free throw line. So Patrick Williams has really figured it out. Killian Hayes, not the best week. I want to give you some numbers. Let me answer the question first. I am going to hold that for right now. I want to sell, but it depends on Wes. Let me know in the chat. Is a fifth guard considered a rotation player? Because if he's a fifth guard is considered a rotation player, I would buy this. Wes gives me the thumbs down. Okay, so I will sell. Like, I know people aren't going to like if we hold too much. So I will sell this because I literally text somebody the other day and said, if Killian Hayes is my fourth guard, I'm okay. I'm fine with that. If Killian Hayes is my fifth guard, I'm feeling really good about that. Here's my worry about him as a reserve, though, Amari. So as a starter, he shoots 39% from the field. That actually goes down to 37% as a reserve. 29% from three as a starter, 23% as a reserve. 81% from the free throw line as a starter, 69% as a reserve. Those numbers aren't great for a starter anyway, and they go down. And so I think I have to sell this because like, he hasn't, shown that he actually plays well coming off the bench where are you at with this i am leaning toward by okay only because i think that somebody with killian's skill set which is just being really efficient with passing the ball and then that along with the emergence of just some improved finishing uh, his mid-range being more consistent. I know he kind of had a rough stretch of games last week, but up until then, he had been one of the more consistent players on the roster. And I know there's always this question of how much of this is sustainable, right? Like we've seen Killian have good stretches here and there. I don't know if we had ever seen him sustain it for as long as we saw it there, where it's not like he's just shooting unsustainably hot from three. It's things that he can build on, right? Like just getting to the rim a little bit more. The passing had always been there. You know, defensively, he had size. He's not like a, a, a Tony Allen type, but he's somebody who can handle his own in certain matchups. And I guess you get into the debate of like, is the fifth guard like a rotation level guard? But I look at that and I say that there are point guards who are like carved careers are just being like the third guy, like the insurance option. But he, like if the rest of the team is where it should be from just a, a, a deaf standpoint that those th- then those guys can just kind of hold things down until you get healthier. And I see Killian being in that. He's going to have stretches where he's a really solid 
a backup point guard. He's going to have some stretches where the shots not falling, but at this point in his career and the stuff he's done this season, I think it's sustainable enough to where I can buy rotation level guard. That's not necessarily a starter or anything, but if you have like a 10 man ro- rotation, I think he could probably crack that rotation and you could be fine. That's fair. Chuck Brewer says the problem is Hayes needs shooters as bad as we are at shooting this year. The bench is even worse. That's, a fair point where maybe if you put him on a team where like he just fits really nicely with everything else you have, because he has cut down on the turnovers, right? Like he's a low turnover guy. I will continue to say, I think he is nowhere near an elite level defender, Amari. I think he is a good defender, especially off the ball. I don't think he's anywhere close to elite. I also just want to give you these numbers. I found this very interesting. Maybe this is true for all NBA players. I don't know, but these numbers are going to be his minutes per game, Amari, From 30 to 39, 20 to 29, 10 to 19. So in descending order in the amount of playing time he gets. When he gets 30 to 39, he shoots 43% from the field, 30% from three. You go to 20 to 29, 36% from the field, 29% from three. And 10 to 19 minutes, 22% from the field, 13% from three. I just found those numbers fascinating in terms of it's almost like he needs to start And he needs to play legitimate minutes. And I don't know if it's like a confidence thing, if it's a flow of the game thing. And again, I I would guess those numbers drop a little bit for every player. But that makes me a little bit worried about, okay, is this a guy that can really be confident as the fourth guard on a team whenever we see those numbers drop? from starter to reserve, or as the minutes decrease. So I just, I thought that was interesting. I want to emphasize, I think he's an NBA player. I think Killian Hayes will absolutely be on an NBA roster next year. I don't even hate if he's on the Pistons roster next year. If it's as the fifth guard, that's what I would be fine with. But that's where I'm at. So I have to sell that if Wes says that the fifth guard is not a rotation player. I think that's very fair, Wes. Omari, anything else on Killian Hayes before we move to Asar? I would just add... Uh, when it comes to the percentages for like minutes played, I wonder how much of that is j- like dependent on just how well he starts, right? Like if he's having like a really bad shooting night, then maybe he just doesn't crack 20 minutes because sure. the coach is like, well, you know, we have other options here. But I also just think the amount of shots Killian's had to create this year as far as just getting to those dribble pull-up middies and some of the drives he's had. Like, again, this team is not a good offensive team by any means. So Killian still probably had more of an offensive role than he should, right? Like, plays probably shouldn't depend on him being able to knock down a mid-range shot. Like, there's only a handful of guys who should really have that mid-range responsibility, and Killian's occupied that role, and he's been okay. I think this season, I've seen enough to where I feel comfortable that he's a rotation-level point guard who's probably having to do a little bit too much on this team. But 6'5", like, as well as he's passed, the free throw numbers are down this year, but he's getting to the line a little bit more, and... The free throw numbers have been good up until now, so I don't know what's going on there. Like, he he just barely cracks by. You know, like, it's probably more of, like, I, I want to say hold, but then it's like, well, he's in year four. Like, he can't hold forever, right? I'm he's just, almost played 200 games at this point. Yeah, he's almost, almost, I looked it up today. He's almost played 200 games. Yeah. I'm 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 at a buy. If it's this version of Killian Hayes we've gotten this season, I'm 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 at a buy. But it could be too much from now. He, you know, begins to fall off a little bit, and then I'm changing my mind. Right now, I'm going by. 
Youngblood said it's a rhythm thing. And I wanted to shout out Youngblood here as well. And I, I guess StreamYard, because if you are watching us on Twitter, you're being counted into the views, but also it looks like you guys can comment and participate in the show like everybody else watching on YouTube. So definitely do that. Doug McMiniman says, what are Ivy's number in that scenario? I'm just going to read off the true shooting percentage. Starter reserve 53.1 and 53.8. And then if you look at the minutes descending from 40, 30, 20, 10, 55, 53, 53, 51. So definitely not the drastic drop as someone like Killian Hayes. Let's move on because we got some others we really have to get to. We may have to go quick here. This one with Asar, not quite as fun, but obviously we want to talk about Asar a little bit. Asar Amari will play the majority of his career minutes at the four. Are you buying that, selling that, holding that? I'm going to sell. I think he will. I think majority is why I sell. I can see him. I can see it being a pretty even split. I think when a lot of rosters, just with Fasar being 6'6 and being the more slight build, like it's going to be a tough matchup for him at the four. But of course, like three, four, like it's pretty interchangeable in a lot of offenses anyway. He may be more of a four on offense and a three on defense. So some of that's just semantics, I suppose. But I don't know about majority at the four. I think he's more of a wing defender than a guy that you want, like, Tussling on like the wing and in the post, like you got power forwards like Julius Randle that I'm not sure you want to put Asar on. I'm still leaning more toward him being a three four, but even in that, it may be pretty close to a 50 50 split. So I'm going to go sell. I think he's going to play both positions pretty evenly depending on the roster makeup and of course lineup as well. Yeah, I think I'm going to sell as well, even though I do think minutes at the four are definitely something he's going to see. Mm-hmm. I think it may be a thing. It's going to depend on a couple of things. How much bulk can he put on, right? Like how strong can he get? Because if he really strengthens up to where he can hold up against some of those matchups, obviously he can play more minutes there. I also think it depends on his shot. The better his shot becomes, the more he can play minutes as a wing as opposed to like a forward. Like right now, I'm begging for Sar to be using that pick and roll that we've seen sparingly. But I'm like, this is maybe his best play type right now. So I think I'm with you. B-Ball Reference has it at 71-27, 71-28, and then like 1% at the shooting guard. I also want to quickly hear Amari give Asar's splits from the start of the season and then the last nine games. So early in the season, first 18 games, there were more minutes here, eight more minutes a game. So that's fair. The shooting is pretty much the same. Rebounds, he was at 9.3, 1.1 steal, 1.6 blocks. Over his last nine, Omari, he's down to 5.8 rebounds, 0.4 steals, and 0.2 blocks. I think we may have seen Asar hit a little bit of a rookie wall here. Wes brought up a good point. Like, how many games did OTE play last year? I looked up the schedule, and sometimes that stuff's hard to tell. Sometimes they win a whole week without playing a game. They would play, like, on the third and then the tenth. I just wonder, and it's understandable, I just wonder if maybe he's hitting a little bit of game back-to-back, one night off, game, two nights, back-to-back. I wonder if that's hit Asar a little bit like we talked about earlier with Sasser. Yeah, some of that too could also just be the fact that he's had the mask on his face. And sure. we asked Monty about it and uh, Monty said that, you know, some guys, it just took them a while to either, either adjust or it took them a while to find a mask that allowed them to, to breathe and really feel comfortable. Uh, so I'd be curious to see if there's any correlation there once that mask finally comes off, if we see some of those numbers bump up. But also just going back to the uh, three and four debate, I also think for him to play the four, you have to have a stretch five next to him, which Isaiah Stewart is the only guy on this roster who could even really qualify as that. So that's probably 
then again, they've gone like too big a, a lot. So they've had a lot of four or five combinations that have lacked spacing. I just think if he's on a team with a like, let's say you have like a Jaron Jackson, right? And you're playing like sure. maybe, like maybe a smaller lineup. But you have a star at the four and Jaron at, at the five. Like that might work. And a star could make up for some of Jaron's lack of rebounding, too. So for me, it really is situational. But if he's on a team with a guy like that, then he probably is where before. All right, let's get to the ones that I feel like everybody's probably like, will you guys just talk about these ones already? They're the ones I promoted on Twitter. I'm sorry, we didn't intend to do this, but we wanted you to stay around for the whole episode. Cade Cunningham will be the best player on a championship contender in his career. We're not saying... Omari, you don't have to answer it as Cade Cunningham will win an NBA championship as the best player. When I think championship contender, I'm thinking there are five, six of those every year, right? Like the the number depends, but it's not just the best team. Do you think that Cade Cunningham is still on that path based off what you've seen? So that's tough because you're looking at like the first half versus the second half of this season thus far. And like Cade's been so much better in the second half, really, since Bogus and other guys have come back. But I think right now, this is going to be my first hold. I am naturally, when it comes to the best players being on championship teams, they tend to be like true wings or bigs. And usually the point or, you know, two or whoever tends to be in more of a secondary row. You know, K does look more like a point guard maybe in the last few weeks since he's cut those turnovers down. And that just naturally leads me to say, you know, if your best player is a point guard, you probably have a pretty limited ceiling just based on historical trends. But at the same time, like you see what K did last night. And, you know, there's been all this debate all season, like a K live up to number one and this and that. But he's had enough of those types of performances to make you think like he could eventually get to a point to where this is closer to the norm for him than not. He didn't do anything last night that he couldn't sustain. And you just think about really surrounding him with talent. And that could also help as well. You look at LeBron James' rookie year, and, you know, of course, he came in like the greatest high school prospect ever, but he wasn't efficient his first year. You know, it took a while for him to kind of figure some things out. And granted, he was younger than Kate is now, but I see a path for Kate getting there. Like, but when I think championship contender, it just tends to be teams who have like the MBs, the Jokic's, the Giannis's, the guys who are a lot harder to game plan for. And K is going to probably need some type of force like that to really get over that hump. So I'm just out of hold right now, maybe leaning closer to this cell. But I think he's shown enough to make me not want to commit to that. YouTube user says best player is very subjective. Highest scorer, probably not. Like, yeah, I think a lot of the conversation we yeah. have is very subjective. Like, uh, and, and I mean, best player, most important player, however you want to say. I've, I've said from the day Cade was drafted, I thought he would be the best player, most important, however you want to say it, on a team like that. But I didn't think he was going to be the leading scorer. My vision for the best version of Cade Cunningham was a 23 to 25 point a game guy who got six or seven rebounds, seven or eight assists, was really good defensively. And that's why where I'm at right now is I'm at a hold. And that's because I've been bought into Cade Cunningham being this player ever since he was drafted. He hasn't done anything for me to buy more stock in his 103 games or whatever it is this season, but I'm also not going to sell all that stock. And I know there are people that are selling their Cade Cunningham stock. I get a text or a tweet or a DM every second or third day comparing Cade Cunningham to Killian Hayes and how all he is is a higher usage Killian Hayes. And so I know there are people completely selling their Cade Cunningham stock. I will not sell mine. I'm not necessarily buying more of this stock I am holding it. 
I think there's two things Cade Cunningham has to figure out to be this player, Amari. One is defensively. I've been very critical recently about Cade's defense on the pod, on Twitter. I think it needs to improve. He is taking a huge workload offensively. I get it. I understand it. I understand it. But I still think there can be improvement. I also think he has to find like his go-to spot of the floor, play type, whatever it is on the offensive end. If you look at synergy, and I'm not going to go through all of it, Amari, because it would take up too much time. Every single play type, if you believe in synergy, is average, below average. There are a couple excellent. Those are both off the ball. I think he's got to find somewhere where he's elite, where he's excellent, whether it's getting to the rim and getting fouled, whether it is the mid-range, whether it's like getting the three-point shot figured out. I know it has been better, but I think he's got to find that. And just real quick here, over his last 13 games, 24 points a game, four rebounds, seven assists, only 3.1 turnovers on 47% from the field, 34% from three, 91% from the free throw line on 5.2 attempts. He is getting better right now, and we saw that on Monday night with that performance. So I will very happily hold this. Yeah, those last 13 games are very firmly to be second-best player numbers, especially with some of the defensive plays he had. And again, he's a connector. Uh, He's the guy who organizes your offense. So uh, I think some of his impact on winning teams will be more intangible. And even if he's not the leading scorer, he may be the all-around best player and there could be some debate there. But the K, we've seen the last 13 games is much closer to the K that we saw toward the end of his rookie season where, and especially last night, where he kind of has that switch that he could turn on when he needs it. We hadn't quite seen that yet. Let's try to get one more in here. Uh, Let, let's do a Jay Nivey, yeah. and then we'll just quickly answer Isaiah Stewart with no context. We'll just answer that one, and then we'll go to break. But yeah. let's do Jay Nivey fully first. Yeah, so this one is Jaden Ivey will average over 25 points per game in at least one season. Bryce, are you buying, selling, or holding? I want to buy this so bad. I want to buy this so bad, and I'm not going to buy it. I love Jaden Ivey. I'm actually going to sell this. I'm not even going to hold it. I think Jaden Ivey is a 20 to 25 point per game guy. I can't say right now, based off what we've seen, that he is going to have a season where he averages over 25. That's where I'm at. Listen, maybe people will think I'm an Ivey hater for this take. I don't think that's what I'm being. I have been a huge supporter of Jaden Ivey. I think Jaden Ivey is awesome. I don't think anybody on the team pressures the rim better than Jaden Ivey. But at time of recording, Amari, he is shooting not very well from three-point this season. Jaden Ivey is at 28%. The catch-and-shoot numbers are really, really weird because he's 38% on guarded, 22% on unguarded. And the thing that makes me a little bit nervous right now is. We've been giving him a lot of love for his finishing around the rim improvement. He was at 79% a month ago. He's down to 69% now. The last few games, he has struggled to make some of those shots at the rim that we talked about. I think the defense has made strides. I love seeing that. I think somebody commented earlier that he had some really good possessions on Trey Young, and I, I, I believe that as well. I still think he should play 30 minutes a night. I don't care where it comes from. I think he should play 30 minutes a night. I have to sell this because right now I can't just, I can't honestly say I think I see that for him. I still think he could be a 20 to 25 game a a night, 20 to 25 point a game night. Holy cow. 20 to 25 points a game, night in, night out, I guess, at some point in his career or for a few years in his career. 
I agree with you 100%. I'm also a sell on that. Uh, I just don't think he can be a 25 points per game guy shooting the way he's shot thus far. And I still think he, he can improve as a shooter, but is he going to really get to like that 75th percentile of shooter like a lot of guys in that range are? Because if you're not in that range, then you've got to be absolutely elite at finishing and drawing fouls. He hasn't been quite that either. He still has a lot of growth ahead of him, and I think he's going to be a very good player. But you can be a very good player and not average 25 points a, a, a game. You know, I think the ideal version of him for this team is somebody who could get you a bucket, but also defend pretty well. And he has some moments against Trey Young where a month ago he might have jumped and, you know, like gave him a four-point play or something, and he didn't bite. Like he was a lot more disciplined, I thought. We see him making strides in different ways this season, and I still feel pretty good about him eventually becoming a really, really, really strong impact guard. I just don't know if that 25-point threshold is one he'll ever crack, so I'm also a sell. I thought whenever Wes put it in there, it said 20 point per game. And I'm like, yes, bye, bye. I'm buying yeah. all of that stock 100%. Like it's it's legitimately the difference between being 20 to 25 and 25 to 30 for right. me. And so uh, I very much have my general Jaden Ivey stock. I have all of it. And if you want to sell me your general Jaden Ivey stock, I will take all of that as well because I think he's really good at basketball. Real quick, AP from Twitter or X, whatever. He said, can y'all see my comments? Yes, we can. So drop them in there. Sometimes we we talk about them. Sometimes we just put them up on the screen, etc. Last one, then we'll go to break. Isaiah Stewart is not a four. Buy, sell, hold. You know, I am going to go buy at this point. I think he's a guy who could be a situational four. And again, like I think the three-point shooting has been conflated with him only purely playing the four, which, I mean, that was the game plan for him uh, to play the four clearly based on this season. But I think that's just a valuable skill set to have at the five, honestly. You know, a guy who can re- rebound, give you some juice defensively, and then knock down open threes is a pretty solid uh, center in a modern NBA. He's not going to be as challenged to drive to the rim as much as what he does. It'll be against players bigger than him, so those lanes should be a little bit more open for him. Yeah, just this season, I think you see the difference between a guy like Isaiah at the four and a guy like a Jeremy Grant, who's just a little bit more dynamic with the ball. Uh, a little bit more dynamic, maybe on the perimeter. Uh, you could get the weak side blocks from him. And Isaiah, like he could switch. And that's still a valuable skill set. Like I'm not saying he doesn't have so many skills that could translate over to the four. It's just when you get to him being a full time four, I see him as more of a five who could play the four in certain lineups. And, you know, again, like he still has development in front of him and this and that. But just the way he plays this season, I just think his game would translate a lot better to the five. And that's not a knock on him. I just think he has a skill set for like a pretty solid modern five in the NBA. Yeah, I'm with you pretty much in lockstep here. I buy that he is not a four. And I want to be very clear on something. I think the floor spacing conversation turned too much into him being a four man, as you alluded to. I was at the forefront of that. I got caught up in that. I never was thinking Isaiah Stewart needs to become a four. I just felt like Isaiah Stewart needed to stretch the floor because he wasn't like an elite finisher around the basket. So I'm just as guilty as anybody else of, oh yeah, playing the four, playing on the perimeter, those type of things. And then that became, he needs to be a four man and and all of that. So as other people have said in the comments, I don't think the rest has come along, even though the shooting does look like maybe it'll get there eventually. And Like I do, as Chuck Brewer says, I think he ends up being a really good bench big. I think if he's your third big, you feel really good. If he's your fourth big, I think you feel great. Amari, we got to go to a break. When we come back, we're going to talk bigger picture team stuff. Troy Weaver, big moves, small moves, Monty Williams, and what the Pistons should do with their young guys. We'll get to all of that right after this short break.
we're back with segment three and we're just going to dive in because I know we have about uh, 15 minutes left, a little bit more. We can, we can stretch a little bit probably, but let's get into something that people have been debating pretty hotly. Bryce, buy, sell or hold. Troy Weaver should be fired before the trade deadline. Okay. So I've been thinking about this all day, Amari. And me and Wes probably sent 10 pages, if we put it on a Google Doc, of text messages. And I want to be completely transparent. Like, I'm at that point with all of this. I was saying buy. I literally text Wes and I said, hey, I just want to give you a heads up. I'm going to buy this. And we went back and forth. And we had a really good discussion, which Wes and I usually do. And here's where I landed. Here's what I'm still buying this. Here's what I buy. Before the deadline, this front office needs to figure out who the decision makers are, who's the main voices, who has the final say, and what the game plan is moving forward. I put out the Twitter poll today. I believe that having a bad plan is still better than having multiple plans, i.e. you have too many chefs in the kitchen trying to cook the same thing with different recipes. That's going to be a disaster. So I am saying that they need to figure out whether it is, do we trust Troy Weaver to make the decisions or do we not? If Troy Weaver was making the decisions, is somebody else going to have a voice in it? Is there a realignment within the front office? Who has the final say? Did they learn mistakes from this past offseason? And the other thing is, is that all matched with what Monty Williams wants to coach on the court, Amari? Because at the end of the day, whether the fan, no matter what the fan base thinks about Monte Williams, I don't think he's going anywhere for a little while. And so you need to give him the team that he can coach in his style. I think there is a complete disconnect. And I want to be very clear about something because I got asked this today. I have no insider information. I don't have a single phone number, Twitter DM to anybody within that organization. And I've said for... A year and a half now, Omari, if he knows something, he sure as heck don't tell me. So this is me sitting in the middle of nowhere, Kansas, on my couch watching games. My vibe is this front office is not on the same page and they need to get on the same page, whatever that takes. They have two assistant GMs, basketball strategy analysts, basketball chief of staff, front office assistant, that's Dwayne Casey, all of these guys. Do we need to realign who has the final say, who comes up with the ideas, all of that stuff? I don't know who's to blame, but they need to make a decision on that. Something needs to change before the trade deadline. I am going to say, and I'm going to explain this. I'm going to explain why I'm saying this. (laughs) I'm actually going to go sell. I think the best thing to do this season is to reevaluate at the end of the season. The season is already a suck cost. I don't think there's anything you can necessarily do to change that. Uh, just from an asset standpoint, they're not in a great position to really swing the type of trade they need to turn things around. Uh, like I know that, you know, people have dreams about Larry marketing. You know, like I'm sure Utah can do better than a first round pick that doesn't start until 2028. And even so, that just really ties up Detroit's uh, future in a way that they're probably not comfortable with. I mean, they're already not comfortable with what's going on now, you know, so you don't want to push yourself further into a hole by trading for a player who still may not get you over the hump if your draft picks aren't panning out the way that you want. At the end of the day, you know, Troy can't do anything without Tom's approval. Like, I know people are of the mind, like, well, if you no longer have confidence in this uh, front office, then, you know, why even allow him to make moves at the trade deadline? But the thing is, you like, if it's a move that you think hurts the franchise long term, Tom doesn't have to agree to it, you know? And I think at this point in the season, like, this season is like, 
chaos, right? I mean, you've lost 24 straight games. Like, there's no way around that that the season has been a failure. But I think along with that, I just don't think there's a lot of upside to doing it right now. I think, and I also just knowing how Tom operates, like he tends to be more of an, like, let's figure things out at the end of the year type of guy. So far, even throughout all of this, it seems like the Pistons, for the most part, are still on the, the same page. You know, the, the dialogue between Monty and Cade has been open. Uh, you, you still see the, the front office engaged with the players and whatnot. Like, the communication's been there. It's just clear that everybody's sort of collectively misevaluated where this team is, and there's some decisions that I think backfired in ways that they couldn't have predicted. But to me, this season is what it is, right? There's nothing you could do to really salvage what's left. You have a coach who's in his first year. You still have young guys who are in development mode. To me, okay, this season's a slight cost. Get whatever draft pick you get at the end of the offseason. Reevaluate everything. And if you think it's time for a clean break, you could do it then. But I don't know if trading, if firing him before the trade deadline really accomplishes anything. And I want to be clear. I'm not saying that the answer is fire Troy Weaver. I'm just saying... I think everything needs to be evaluated now because I think this could start at the trade deadline. And I think that the offseason and all of it, like, listen, I use the injuries as a rationale just as much as anybody. Like, Boyan is back now and there's still, like, there was still a misevaluation whether it was putting too much trust in older players or not accounting for injuries. And there's still other gaps on the roster. I equated it to this. I was thinking about this today, Omari. It's like how we do the podcast where Wes puts the outline together, but in all honesty, peek behind the curtain, if you and I don't like a topic, we overrule that and take it out or put something new in, right? Well, if the podcast stops getting numbers and it's not doing well, I don't think we should fire Wes. I don't think we should fire you or me. What I think we should do is maybe Wes should have final say in what the topics are and Bryce and Amari shouldn't have final say or be allowed to take them out. So that, that was kind of my, I guess, analogy or whatever. Like that's how I look at it of, I'm not saying you have to fire anybody. Maybe it's as simple as tweaking. This person has a little bit more say. Maybe Troy Weaver needs more of a say. Like I have a, I, I pitched this to Wes the other day. What if Troy Weaver wanted to make moves this off season? We, you know, we've talked about this. And the other people in the organization were like, no, 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 we need to wait. We don't like those. Again, I don't know this. This is all speculation. Maybe even not fair to bring up. Maybe the answer is let Troy Weaver do what Troy Weaver wants to do. Maybe they saw like, oh, those moves would have worked. Now at the deadline and going into the offseason, we'll let him make those moves. Maybe it was vice versa. I don't know. I feel like I, I just would like to see everything get on the same page. That, that, that's my vibe. I could be completely wrong here. We're also on a 24-game losing streak, and so we're all kind of all over the place with it. That's where I'm at. I would, And we don't even have to know. Like, I'm not one of those like that they need to answer to us and tell us, Amari. I don't care if they tell us or not. I just wonder if the plan needs to get a little bit more in line, everybody there, maybe a little bit of a shakeup just with who has the biggest say. That, that, that's my answer to it. Yeah, and I think along with that, even though the Pistons, from an asset standpoint, probably aren't in a great position. Like, again, the step-in rule is going to prevent them from really making the big swing that yeah, yeah. they would probably want to see. But they do have a lot of expiring contracts. They have Bogey, they have Joe Harris, they have Marte Boris, and they have Alec Burks. And, of course, Bogey's probably the most, from just a, helping a team on the court, like, Bogey's probably number one on that list. But... You have teams, again, that are in the middle, they have uh, expensive salaries, and they, be, they may be willing to give up talented players for less than they normally would be just to correct their books and start a more formal 
rebuild process this summer. Uh, we're still a couple months from the trade deadline, but there could be a move just sitting there that hasn't materialized yet that could get the type of power for it this team needs to really start playing. The basketball needs to, to play. So again, you can't rescue this season, but there are still avenues they have to at least course correct this for future seasons. And again, everything I've heard so far is still that you know, they're trusting Monty and Trey to figure this out. You know, what that breaking point will be is tough to say, but that's the MO right now. And I don't necessarily I don't necessarily disagree with that just because you don't necessarily fix anything by firing anybody right now. Well, and listen, if you tell me Troy and Monty are on the same page, then I'll shut up. Like if if that's truly what it is, like that's what I that's what I would like to know. Like that's what would make me feel good is like Monty and Troy are on the same page with the players and the ones they have or, you know, like he did draft some of these guys before they hired Monte Williams. So maybe it is going to take some correction in terms of, you know, Troy really liked this guy, but Monty doesn't think he really fits into the way he wants to play. So maybe there's some correction there. I get it. That's all I want. And we don't know those and we shouldn't know it. We have no idea who has the biggest voice in those rooms and in those meetings. And we shouldn't know All I just, I want to know or I want to believe that they all are on the same page, that there's a game plan moving forward and all of that. So listen, Chuck, this, I said it from the start. I, I, this is me completely speculating. Like, I I don't know this. This is my vibe. And and I'll be honest, like Mari, Omari is kind of saying the opposite. And obviously he would know more than me. He's at least around the team every day. This is just my vibe. Obviously something went wrong this offseason and again maybe as a miscalculation by everybody no there is no smoke to it though like the my biggest things are I don't think that they hired the coach that Troy Weaver wanted and I think it's weird that Jay Nivey who was Troy Weaver's number five pick hasn't been prioritized by the head coach like those are my two things and so like no there's beyond that there's not but if if things are there, then then I'm good with it. Maybe the front office just needed to learn from this last offseason of, hey, we can't just bring in these expiring vets, you know, that type of thing. And maybe they were waiting for a move. And the other thing, Amari, you kind of alluded to it. Maybe they had moves they wanted to make and they just didn't materialize for whatever reason. We know that stuff happens all the time as well. So we spent enough time on this. I think we've both got out where we're at with that. The next one, the Pistons need to make a big move before the deadline. So starting with trade deadline stuff, do you think they need to make a big move? We're talking trying to go after Anobi, Lori Markinen, Zach Levine, all of the names we've all heard. I am a buy, but at the same time, it's like a the right move buy, right? And if those guys are not attainable, then honestly, you just write the season out. So maybe that's more of a hold for me. Uh, like, I don't think they need to do something for the sake of doing something. You know, I don't think you need to take on a player who has an injury history and now your cap sheet's clean right now and then you take somebody on and it doesn't work out. You know, like, I think this front office is aware of the fact that as bad as this season is, they still have a lot of flexibility going forward. And the reality is that you know, teams suck sometimes, but, you know, you can use that flexibility and leverage it and get better. And the fans become pretty forgiving once you do start to sack up wins. Like, again, there's no guarantee that that would happen for this team. You could look at the Lions. You know, they were, you know, folks wanted people fired, you know, a year ago. You know, like they were out on Dan Campbell and then things began to turn around slowly. But slowly, again, we have no idea if this business team is going to be able to do that. But I don't think they need to make a move just for the sake of doing it. If this season is just... The worst season of all time. All right. This is what you built. 
swallow it, eat it, whatever, and move on. Assess what you need to do and then do it then. So that's where I'm at with that. I think that if you could get marketing an OG for like a good price or somebody else for like the right price, whether it's a John Collins salary dump or something like that, then sure, go for it. If it's a riskier move that opens the door for this team doubling down on some of the mistakes it's already made, then by all means, don't do it. So I'm still a hope. And I think closer to the trade deadline, there will be a much better idea of what's realistic as far as what they could turn some of those expiring contracts into. Yeah, I'm actually with you on the terms of like this season kind of is what it is. It's already been historically bad. And I realize it can like truly go down in the record books. I get it. Like we're talking about the losing streak. You're also talking about like just in general win loss if things don't get figured out. So I understand it. I get people are tired of the losing and all of that. But to me, it's like this is a goner essentially regardless. And so, no, you don't just make a move to make a move. I would not do that. And so what I would, you have to call about OG. You have to call about Lowry. Mm. My guess is they don't have the assets to do it. Lowry is the one that is more enticing to me, Omari, because he's only on the books for, I think, like 19 million next season even. And so you would still actually keep some flexibility with trading for Lowry moving forward in terms of what else you can build around him. OG is on an expiring. I think he has a player option, which obviously he would decline. And you have no assurance that he's going to resign with the Pistons. So I don't think they have the assets to get those guys. And guys like Neb says here from Twitter, if you can get one of them, keep all the core four, then sure. There's no way you're doing that because the Pistons don't have the draft equity to do that at all. Like it's not even close because they would have to send something to the Knicks to relinquish that pick. And then they still couldn't even get to, I think, more than three first rounders and pick swaps and stuff. So, yeah, like I would take those guys at, a, at depending on what you had to give up. I think it would hurt a little bit. You would have to relinquish some of the young core. But outside of that, I think I'm out on a big move at this time and a little more with you, Amari, in terms of let's just let this season be what it is. Let's reassess. We just talked about it. Lessons have been learned, hopefully, and you go into next offseason and you capitalize on those lessons and build. Absolutely. We have two more here and we're going to try to get through these somewhat quickly. The first one was Monty Williams, the right hire for the Pistons. Bryce, where are you on this one? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is no, right? Like, like it hasn't been good. I think it's hard to debate that right now based off what they've done. But like long term, this is a hold for me. And I realize he's you know, coaching a team that's lost 24 straight games. But all I have to do right now is all I can go off is the hope that everything he's doing right now is building to something better. Like I just have to have faith in that. I also think these conversations about the front office and about coaches shows how little information we have to truly judge them on. Like it just, to me, it's like, I don't know how to judge Monty. If the Cade Cunningham quote wouldn't have came out yesterday, I wonder how people would feel because I think that gave Monty a lot of good vibes with the fan base to hear Cade come out and say that, that those two were still on the same page. We have no idea how the players are responding to him in the locker room and all of those things. Again, I can judge how I'm seeing it on the court, which doesn't look great. I don't love the vibes, but I'm sitting in Lake in Kansas. How many ever hours away? Like, I don't actually know. I have no idea what he's actually doing here in terms of the roster development, all of those things. We could be looking at this the start of next year. Things are going well. Ivy's hooping. All of this stuff was was great for the long term and feel really good about him. So no, like 
it's hard to argue it was a great hire right now, but I don't think I can sell it after 26 games or whatever. I, I have to see it play out a little bit. Like, I think we just have to live with it and see it play out. Yeah, I'm a hold. And the reason for that is because, well, one, I'll add that I, I asked Kate the question about Monty yesterday just because Monty had talked about the convos he had had with Kate. And actually, I Kate about Monty a couple of times this week. And, you know, Kate just talked about the relationship that they have. And the dialogues that they've had. So, you know, I asked just because I thought it would be valuable for Kay to just speak with it firsthand because I know people tend to make assumptions one way or another. Uh, but with that, I'm a hold on Monty. And the biggest reason, like, uh, like there's rotation decisions you can uh, debate. Like, there's all sorts of stuff, right? Like, the team isn't good, so I think everything is up for criticism. But along with that, I think I can say with confidence that this roster is not constructed in a way that has made Monty's job easier or his scheme functional like i mentioned it earlier but the big man rotation you have isaiah stewart playing power for it when Vermont's scheme he's probably better at the five stretching the floor out and then you have bagley wiseman and duran who are all functionally the same player like duran's probably the best of that group but you can't play any of those three guys together at all so you're limited in your center rotation uh, you don't have the shooting you need at other spots you have multiple on-ball guards and Cade, sasser killian and Ivy and some of those guys have had to play more off ball. Uh, you know, so Monty basically said, well, Ivy's the off ball guard in this scenario. Has that really worked out that great? No, but they all can't have the the ball. So I think he's been forced to make some decisions that are more so motivated by what he has at hand. People wondered why Isaiah Livers got such a big role from day one when he came back from his injury. The reason is because there may be a handful of guys in this roster who, in theory, can shoot and defend. And Isaiah is one of those guys. He's going to give Isaiah, you know, the time he needs to get back into that rhythm. And of course, he hasn't that hasn't happened. And he's cutting back now. But again, like people ask, why is it the star doing more pick and roll? It's like, well, you know, they have some tough matchups at the, the five last week and at the four. But along with that, you can't have a pick and roll forward and three pick and roll bigs and run pick and roll with everybody. Like you just can't. Like there's not enough. Like, there's just not enough for you to be able to do that. So I just think with all the roster overlap, I think any coach realistically would come into the situation and have a tough time putting together viable lineups. So, sure, criticize Monty for what you want, but I don't think any other coach would necessarily have done a significantly better job just with how this team is set up. All right, last one here. The Pistons need to hold on to their young guys. I assume that would be like the core four, what I would refer to as the core four of Cade, Jaden Ivey, Jalen Duran, and Asar, and the picks this offseason. So where are you at with that in terms of essentially like, okay, if there's a move to be made out there, make it, but I'm not trading or moving on from any of those four. Or in like you could, even with the Knicks situation, you could, I think, trade like 28 and 30 at this point, or maybe it's only 29, something like that. What? Where are you at with those? I am a buy only because the Pistons have horrific luck when it's come to trading young guys too early, like absolutely horrific. Like unless you're getting like a bona fide superstar in a trade, which I just have a tough time envisioning given that this team does not have the draft capital to really make that happen. But at the end of the day, for me, I think I just ride the season out. That's what I lean more toward. If something lines up and you could just flip some of those expirings for somebody, then by all means do that. But I think you still need a full season of data on all of these guys before you start making those decisions. Now, if you come into the offseason and then things begin to materialize, then, you know, by all means, like at that point, you have a better idea of who fits and who doesn't. You have a better idea of who fits with Monty and who doesn't. You can make more informed decisions. But... Yes, absolutely. They need to hold on to their young guys. And even though this draft is quote unquote not a great draft, 
based on everybody you talk to and everything you read. There have been bad drafts in the past and then, you know, guys hit later on, right? The 2013 draft is supposed to be historically bad. You look at the top of that draft and it's not good, but then you have a Giannis, you know, who's like the 10th or 12th pick. You have guys who emerge later on and this draft could be that type of draft. And at the end of the day, you just don't need to do anything too hasty this season. It is what it is. Uh, this season's not going to be what you wanted it to be. Don't start trading young guys and trying to upgrade the talent floor just because of this one season. It doesn't matter how many games you lose in a row. Like You can put a respectable team on the, the table at some point, and people will forget about this. It'll be a chapter in the book. You'll move on. So just don't do anything hasty this year. For me, I am buying, holding on to the young guys and their pick this year. So I would just say, I don't think they have to, like, I don't think if the right, I, don't, I just don't think you should make a move just to right the ship, quote unquote, this year or something like that, if that makes sense. So yeah. if the right deal came available, if you could get OG at the right price, if you get Lowry at the right price, that's not a King's ransom, then I think I would be okay with it. I don't think you just go out of your way to make those things happen because of that, right? Like I'm with you. I've said it. If you ride this out, it's already bad. If it gets worse, like it is what it is. But I, I, I agree with you there. The one thing I do start to get a little nervous about is you are going to now have how many ever lottery picks that is with another top five pick this next year. Marcus Sasser's another first round pick. Like that's a lot of guys to try to develop at one time and then also needing to, I think we know this now, add some good quality veterans around them. So how many of these guys can you develop at one time? So that's the only thing I would say. And the only reason why I'd be somewhat open to it, Omari, if it was for the right person and not a just emergency break glass move, but it truly made sense to add some young piece that still fits the timeline. I would only be okay with it because I do think you're starting to get a little bit heavy on how many of these young guys and how much playing time you can give them and all of that. But in general, I still like these four young guys. We've talked about Cade. Everybody knows how much I love Jaden Ivey. Jalen Duran's been good. Hopefully the ankle stuff gets figured out. And I think Asar will get there. Like I think he will get there eventually. So that's where I'm at with those. Amari, you said you have a question here. Yeah, a quick question from Sam Robinson. He does some business stuff actually here at Different Axios, but also just the city as a whole. So give Sam a follow. That's my guy. Okay, you guys are fresh by the pisses out. Don't have a top three pick next year. They might. They, you know, it just depends on how that lottery plays out, but they'll be somewhere between one and five. And at this point, it seems pretty certain that. Well, they'll be one to five if they have the worst odds. I think if they have like the third verse record, they could fall all the way down to seven or something like that. So we'll just have to see as far as that. I, I don't have the I don't have the actual numbers, Sam, and everybody yeah. else listening. But essentially that New York Nick owed pick is like top eighteen this year. And then it starts to drop to like 13, yeah, it's 13, like 13 or something like that. So like if they're in the top five, if they're in the top eighteen in the twenty twenty four draft, they keep it. In twenty twenty five they would have to essentially, I think, make the playoffs to not have the 2025 pick still. Like if they have another really bad year next year, they would still get that pick. So those projections start to go down. I, I can't look up right now. My internet's been a little in and out throughout this anyway, so I don't want to mess with that. But those protections start to decrease. Now, there is a way if you really needed those picks, you could offer something to the Knicks to get rid of them. And then, yeah, I think 2027, those protections go away. So, yeah, when you hear people talk about it, it's just the protections on it. And those do start to go down 
just a little bit. Doug, real quick here, and then I think you had another question, Amari. Doug McMinnon says, you guys did it again. The team is terrible right now, but the podcast was great. Good job, fellas. Like, uh, those type of comments make me feel good. Like, I know it's struggling right now. I know we were a little more animated. I was a little more animated than normal, but we truly do love this. Amari, did you have one more that you wanted to get to as well? Yeah, no no question. Just shout out to Youngblood earlier. That's my boy from uh, high school, Giotti, uh, also a former college hooper. So just wanted to shout him out. That was all. Ah, I love it. Everybody in the comments, as Wes let me know early on, we have Twitter integrated into this now. I don't know why that just happened. If that was a StreamYard or Twitter thing, whatever. Maybe Wes did it. We'll give Wes the credit for that because he's the GOAT. So this is going to be really cool now. I've seen people comment on it. So you guys can watch on Twitter, but it looks like your comments are getting integrated into the chat so we can see what you guys are saying. We can put it up on screen. Everybody on YouTube, obviously, hey, hit the like button. You guys always remind me of that. Thank you to everybody. Amari, 101 episodes, my guy. Incredible. We will do 102 next Wednesday, everybody. Remember, Wednesday next week, just because of all the Christmas and when the games are and all of that. Hopefully, we're talking about a Pistons win somewhere in there and not a historic loss. Theo99 says, what's Twitter? I will call it Twitter. I know it's X, but that just sounds super weird to me. So appreciate everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Thank you for staying with us. Amari, take it away, my guy. Yeah, big thanks, everybody. And big thanks, as always, to our audio producer, Robin Chan, our editor-in-chief, Nicole Avery Nichols, our executive producer, Azadette Delgado, and our sports editor, Kirkland Crawford. And then big shout out to Wes, as always. And we will talk to you guys after Christmas. <laughs>